0: Welcome to three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel podcast network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We are back again after semifinal Friday. Unfortunately, only one, but Novak Djokovic beats Cam Norrie in four sets to move on to the final. He will have a chance for his seventh Wimbledon title, his fourth straight. Nick Kyrgios in the final, the end of this episode will be a discussion about that match. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about Djokovic-Nori. We're going to talk about Nadal's withdrawal. Lots of storylines flying around in relation to that right now. So plenty to discuss uh, with as Nadal uh, withdraws due to a tear in his ab, um, his abdominal muscle. But Djokovic beats Nori in four sets. I usually ask you guys for like an overarching thought on the match, but I actually want to pause after the first set. I only want to hear... What you, th- what you were thinking after the first set, Nori wins it six two. Joel.
1: No way. He keeps that up. That's what I thought. And as soon as the second set started, I saw already some of the errors coming from Nori and you just, so you know, Novak was getting into kind of lockdown mode as he can get, I mean, I think, uh, and you, uh, you texted me the, some of the data, Gil, about what Novak 12 unforced in the first set, yep. was, uh, five and four in the next two sets. Correct. Yeah. I mean, so it's just, again, it's funny. that people came to center court hoping to see two matches. They initially, but Rafa had to withdraw. They kind of got two matches today. They got a really good set from Cam Nori and then Novak pretty much in control.
2: It's funny. I have a friend that I was texting with that I would say has just recently caught the tennis bug and is starting to watch a lot of professional tennis. And he was texting me about... Nori being at this point in the tournament, and that he must have gotten lucky, and is he a pusher? And I'm kind of like, no, 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 shaking my head. Um, So I had to spend the first part of the match convincing him that Nori is a really good player and deserves to be there, and is a lefty and is extremely tricky. And then I had him so convinced he was like, so is Nori going to win the match after the first set? And I said no. Novak's got this. And my impression was that, I mean, Novak said in the post-match that he was a little tight and wasn't hitting through his shots. That really wasn't my impression. Of course, he's going to be tight. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on him, but I didn't think there was any more pressure on him than he usually feels. What I thought was Nori, as we've talked about, has an unconventional technique and they had never played on grass before. They had only played indoors on hard court and picking up the ball off of his racket uh, as vis-a-vis this surface I thought was just a little bit tricky for Novak and that he needed some time, a set to kind of visually start picking it up. And I thought that was evidenced by some wrong footing by Novak in the first set where he thought he spotted a dropper and then he went back and then he, w- he was just kind of didn't have his feet under him. But after that first set, he started to visually click in and then it was all Novak from there
0: the discrepancy between Nori's forehand and his backhand is so enormous that it, it can't be a great feeling if you don't have your timing and you don't have your footwork. It's, uh, I agree that that was a factor. The one thing I would disagree with is that Djokovic feels the same amount of pressure as normal. I think the pressure's way up here, uh, given he hasn't won a major this year and might not get to play the U.S. Open. Nadal withdraws. That doesn't help. Because now he's an even bigger favorite. The expectation that that he's supposed to win is even is even higher. So when I saw him as tight as he was, I mean credit to Nori, but normally when Djokovic, even when he's tight, he still makes more balls in the court than he did in the first set. Uh, I was just thinking, wow, this is just this is another level of uh, of pressure right now that Djokovic is is dealing with. But he once he kind of got his confidence and and loosened up, it was okay.
1: Well, he sort of took Nori's measure. He kind of saw how much he could do. I mean, he's a lot of diagnostic going on in that first set and seeing how balls are and, and adjusting, I think, as Amy pointed out, the grass surface and just getting used to the Nori ball, which is a little bit different than a great many contemporary pros.
0: So now the next three sets come around. Joel, you mentioned Novak. His uh his mistakes go go way down. He's not giving Nori anything. Uh, his his defense played a role. His first serve, his forehand, everything kind of started clicking. Uh, what did we, what did you make Amy of of the portion of the match that Djokovic was uh, was dominating?
2: That Nori wasn't putting as many of Novak's serves in play. So either Novak really improved his serve, particularly his first serve, which I think is the case, or Nori started making more return errors. It's probably a combination of the two. Either way, uh, he started to roll and he started to get into the frame of mind that you, Gil, have often pointed out that he needs to be in to do well, which is, He becomes almost error free. And then when he does make an error, he gets a little irritated with himself. Um, I don't think it was in the second set. It might've been in the third set that he started engaging with a fan who was yelling at him, you know, just a little bit of motivational testiness, I'll call it. And that is really when he starts to groove and roll.
1: You also see with Novak, I think it was about 26 of 32 at the net. Again, some great numbers from Novak at the net throughout this tournament, and the serve. And we saw well. This will be one of those cases where say yet another underrated, lesser looked at aspect of, of the how the Novak serve performs. It's almost like these great players, they're like a team, and each shot is one of the players on the team. And this becomes a chance for that shot to shine. And I think uh, I think Nori. I think Nori's you know pretty wound like a pretty highly strung to come off with all those great shots in the first set it's like so how do you keep that going and you know Novak is not going to go away so it's just uh, again two matches and I think whereas uh, Sinner in the quarterfinal he ran out of ideas I think he had fewer questions to ask and Novak okay this is all you're going to ask we nori had a lot of ideas but even he admitted he kind of lost the plot line on the execution front
0: yeah, I, I agree with that. Did you guys see just before we move away from the serve? Did you see the Hawkeye graphic in the fourth set?
2: No. No what? Uh,
0: the ESPN showed a, a Hawkeye graphic of his first serve spots, and they they put a red box around the middle of the service box, and I think they give about a foot away from um away from the line. It might be even like eight inches or something. I mean, Djokovic is just pinpoint. Uh, On his first serve and, and against sinner in the last three sets, we saw the first serve numbers uh, incredibly high. And it was the same thing in, in this match, he's not losing much behind his first serve. And even if you get it back, he's been so comfortable as you alluded to Joel, just hitting approach shots and staying on top of the point. You know, if you hit a short return Um, and then what was the, Oh, you talk about the execution with Nori. Yeah. You started to see a lot of mistakes creep in. I actually thought the intimidation factor between Djokovic's movement and his defense, but also just the idea that I need to be extra special and extra great in order to beat this guy. I, I think that got to Nori because he was he was pretty impatient in this match. Like he was mm-hmm. pretty aggressive. And I, I thought at a certain point, he should have been like, okay, let's go cross court on our forehand. Let's go safe cross court and like stop trying to to force the issue so desperately, because there were too many unforced errors from from Nori.
2: Isn't, isn't that like the way it is in almost every match? <laughs> when you get down, you start to feel it's natural to start to feel that you need to do more. I couldn't agree more, Gil, that I thought he became a little trigger happy. He was too fast starting in the second set to try to go for a winner by changing directions, or trying to put too much heat on the ball. Um, even on the serve, um, I think for the match, Nori was 57% putting first serves in at 57%. That's not going to cut it. Uh, I mean, that's not going to cut it anywhere, but especially not against Novak Djokovic.
1: You know, Novak makes people increasingly self-conscious of their technique. It'd be interesting to talk with Nori, coach and his camp saying, what a what's What's your gestalt to the game? What is it exactly? Because Nori, he's adroit, he's he's clever. I like I'm a left hand, I like a lot of the things he does, but it's not clear the whole the whole recipe of offense, defense, movement, adventure, innovation. And and then again, Novak just is going to put that to the test. Really, you really got that? Are you going to come up with that many? I mean, he played so many engaging points in that first set so many beauties, right? So when like the opening game, he breaks him with this little cat and mouse and backhand volley winner. It's like, okay, okay. But really, what is it? And the, and, and also I think the less you are sound of your technique, the more you feel the need to go for something sooner. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that about a Wimbledon semifinalist, but there I said it.
2: <laughs> and, and remember how I said that going into this, that Nori should try something radical like lobbying because... Novak isn't as crisp on his overheads. And it was actually Novak that lobbed Nori a few times and and drew an error on an overhead. Um, And it was Nori that looked really unsure.
0: I think multiple, multiple overhead misses. I don't know if it was more than two, but
2: remember the tweener lob? Remember that one? Yeah,
1: (laughs) I think it was was incredible. When you're a player like Nori and you're on the innovation index, because your game is built around broad set of things. This is a little different than Sinner. And you miss those. The, oh, Missing an overhead then can create erosion in the other strokes too, not just the overhead. Because mm-hmm. I, think, I think there's not as much technical soundness. I think Sinner is a little different. Sinner just didn't have as many ideas. It's almost like you could take each of them. Okay, you have some ideas, you have some execution. But I think, Novak, he just, when you're missed, when you, you start to miss, you get things self-conscious. Then you start to go more on the other shots. I mean, Nora was starting to miss some forehands pretty frequently, don't you think, Gil?
0: Totally, and and that's where I I do think he was going for a lot on them. That's where it's like, okay, I'm an inc- I have incredible legs. I'm an amazing athlete. I never get tired. Let's go safe cross court and make Novak come up with something. Like let's let's try to trust my legs here. Um, I I wish he went to that. Maybe he'll go to it next time. I think it could have been a more compelling match if he did that because uh, Novak. Novak loves if you come at him. He wants to counterattack and defend and hit passing shots and uh, retrieve drop shots. I think he'd much rather do that than if if Nori's going to hit through the middle and cross court and you know make the points almost a little bit boring for Novak.
1: Oh, it's such a stew! Nori has a that first set was like a, a bouillabaisse, a stew of all these different things of. You know, seafood and noodles and vegetables and all these things, and then I don't know. And so I wonder. I, I really like the way Nori plays, but I wonder how he go, how he's going to process this match moving ahead. I think though, I think Novak. Okay, Novak got a he got a measure of him.
0: Yeah,
2: let's. But, but Amy, yeah, if I could just uh, jump in with this, uh, as regards Novak and his talent. We had a Twitter follower who watches our show, Cam, brought up a topic which was actually brought uh up on the U.S. telecast that they brought up. And and we've discussed it ad nauseum here on our podcast if you want to look through some of our our older shows on Novak. But the question was, what makes him so good when it's not readily apparent to the eye like it is with Roger or Rafa? And I came up with this, the four Ds. I mean, this is just me and what I see. And it's depth, direction, defense, and demoralization. So I think his depth is consistent and draws his opponent off the court. Direction, how he starts to open up the court. Defense, um, one of the most incredible defenders in the history of tennis, makes you hit three, four, five, six, seven more balls. And demoralization, after ha- facing those first three Ds, you're gonna get demoralized and do exactly what Cam Norrie did today, which was try to, do, try to overhit or, or play too much.
0: Do you know what I think the best comeback, and I just thought of the same, and I, I yeah. love, I, I do like the, uh, the four Ds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best comeback to what what's makes Novak great, what is he not great at?
2: Yeah.
1: That's right. I, yeah. I like that. And I like that he's, I like that it's kind of like little D plus little D plus little D equals big D. I mean, mm-hmm. these things that he does that, that eventually leads to that, and it's this smothering and this thing though, with the defense, I've talked about this before we have about defense. Hmm. Yes. Certainly the Gumby and the retrievals and there's incredible shoty hit versus center, but it's also, it's funny. And this is, I've talked about this recently with some teaching pros. What's the language defense steady. Well, if someone hits one ball about eight inches inside your baseline, catches your eye. Two balls. looks oh, pretty good. Three. Hmm. Wow. Four. What's defense now? What's defense? What's offense? What's the application of pressure? And I, I draw an example of, of Chris Everett because that's how she won. It appeared. What's really going on here? And it's so brilliant. And it's non visual non-visible the way we see the ballerina and Roger and the movements And Roger, you know, is going to probably in any match he, he can play us. And of course that match is going to hit three shots. Oh my God. I've never seen that beat before. Or, that's incredible. Rafa, the the bullfighter the matador right and Novak he's just kind of going about it it's pretty amazing like uh, I I think of some there's some great basketball players like Tim Duncan kind of like that just sustained brilliance
0: my coach uh, what you described Joel uh, my coach and I would describe it as trading so it's not defense and it's not offense it's trading
1: oh I like that trading yeah that's great.
0: Let's move on to Let's move on to Nadal. Um, he he withdraws, and you know, there's basically he got an MRI. It's a tear. Mm-hmm. There's structural damage. Uh, the difference. I, I don't know if this is relevant, but some of you may be wondering. Uh, I do believe there is a difference between uh, what Djokovic sustained in 2021, which which was an oblique, and I believe for Nadal it's in the frontal abs. So it is a different spot, but it's still a tear in the, in the core muscle. Um, no, nope, uh, Rafa did get onto the practice court. I saw footage of him serving. Did you guys see that? It, it looked so belabored. Uh, it just looked like it probably felt like he was getting stabbed in the stomach every time he served. Um, and uh, he said that he didn't feel like he had a chance to win two matches. And if you have no chance to win, um, there was, he wasn't going to go out and play. Amy were you just uh, surprised by by Rafa's decision and you know is is there anything really more you can uh, you can say of it than what Rafa said?
2: I was a little surprised you know I, I thought but I'm not a medical doctor you know I, I thought if he could get through that match I really held out hope that he could play this next match but If there's a tear, there's a tear. And, you know, it's not like the foot. And I think Rafa himself differentiated this where he can feel pretty bad pain with the foot, but he's been told and assured by doctors and medical experts that it's not going to get any worse you know it's not going to permanently disable him but if you've got a tear as we know from novak's injury the tear can increase in length over the course of a match so it can get worse and and it can uh, jeopardize your overall health so of course you know i understand and and think he made the right decision
1: as i was uh, seeing rafa his his withdrawal from the tournament uh, I, got, I was texting various sources of mine, friends and other people, um, and made me think of the Watergate scandal. What did Rafa know, and when did he know it? And I was wondering, just wondering, but I researched this, did Nadal know while he was playing Fritz that he wasn't going to be able to play? And I take it on good faith that he thought, like most competitors do, I'm going to fight through this and, and carry on and see what the next day is, particularly since there was a day off between. It wasn't like he was going to be playing the match the next day. But I was reminded, as were some of my friends, of a famous incident almost 50 years ago. Tom Gorman was in the semis of the year-ending championship. It's being played in Barcelona that year. He's playing Stan Smith in a best-of-five semi. And he feels an injury, back injury, familiar back injuries had before. And but he figures, well, I'm going to lose anyway. And of course, when we're losing, we start to play more freely. When, we, when you think you're going to lose, you play freely. So he reaches match point. And then he walks up to the net and says, you go on to the next round. And and so I thought of that scenario. And I contact, I was in touch with Tom Gorman earlier today. And he said he was 100% sure he was not going to be able to play the match the next day. So he did that. Nadal, I take it on good faith that Nadal... Uh, thought, hey, let's get through this one and let's see. I, I was in touch with a, with a physical therapist, an orthopedic surgeon who said the same thing. It's like, you know, he hadn't been diagnosed. You get treatment, hope for the best. So I just, I just want to put, you know, address that a little bit. It's, a, it's an interesting topic. It's anything to consider because you see, and then I think also, golly, what if that had been a semi versus Fritz? And Adele had to show up, yeah, I'm going to default the final. And that, yeah, that happened once. I, was just got, I just received this week a book called The Wimbledon That Never Was about the 1931 final where that happened, where the American Frank Shields had an ankle injury and the U, and he could have played, but the USLTA said, we got some Davis Cup in a couple of weeks. We need you healthy. Deep the Wimbledon final, Sidney Wood wins it. So these things happen, but now we, here we are, here we are 90, 50 years later. And I feel the Dow, he, he did all the right things in addressing this but it's unfortunate i don't know it's sad i wanted to see those matches
2: well really good work by you to do all that that background and and to reach out to tom gorman all that is fabulous insight and very interesting i think though that you probably have come to the same conclusion that i have that he needed to complete the match because he's a competitor and and that's the way it goes and um he needed the information. He needed the MRI, but um, I, you know, I'm with Andy Roddick that, you know, if you're a competitor, you, you do everything you can to win the match in the moment. And um, also Taylor Fritz said that he doesn't want any handouts that he should, he took full responsibility, which I thought was just a totally great and healthy attitude that he should have beaten Rafa. There, He had his chances and he just didn't do it. So he says, I don't want any handouts.
0: Yeah. I mean, he, he was eliminated. So I I, I get like, if, if you're Nick Curios and if you're Nick Curios, how would you feel that you have to beat the guy who lost in the last round? Anyway, uh,
2: (laughs) how do you feel? How do you feel that you don't have to play anybody though? You feel good.
0: You feel happy that that you get to move on. Do you remember the last time we were having this, a similar conversation, guys?
1: Yes. Last year, Roger Federer.
0: I think that would have been a more, uh, it it would have been more reasonable for Roger match point against Kupfer, right? Mm -hmm. Would have been more reasonable for Roger to do that than in this case, Rafa in the heat of battle, uh, trying to, trying to give himself a chance, find a way, probably didn't think he was going to beat Taylor Fritz, but was just putting his head to the grindstone and Seeing, seeing what happened, and hoping to recover in the next two days.
1: Nadal never thinks he's going to beat anyone until he well, beats them. And you know what I mean? It's like yes. the, the, Nadal, the Nadal approach. I mean, in a way, I mean, this is part of one of the themes or It's almost like the the mega themes of each of our guys. You know, Novak is going to stop missing. That's what Novak's going to do. He's not going to miss. Roger's going to create something elegant, and and Rafa. Oh, I'm just here to compete. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> That's, yep. That's Rafa, and so he wasn't thinking that he's that he's supposed to be Taylor. He's not supposed to be Taylor. There's not there's no supposed to's in in the Rafa world. There's just that that's what makes him so so compelling, and I think that's what makes him such a remarkable competitor.
0: Let's dig a it, little. Go ahead, Amy. I,
2: I was just going to say it's interesting though that um, Rogers' with Jaw was in the middle rounds, and this was in the late rounds. It it really does. To do this in the late rounds really puts a strain on the tournament. It, it puts a strain on uh, TV rights holders. And I know people say, oh, I hate the broadcasters, you know, screw them, who cares, you know. But then out of the other side of their mouth, they say they want better coverage, they want a better streaming product, they want better talent, they want more insights. Well, just understand that not being able to broadcast a huge Wimbledon semifinal is um it's it's going to put the tv network at a big deficit for the rights that they pay dearly for so there's going to have to probably be some givebacks or something in the contract or something like that and it's uh you know it's hard on the on the tv broadcasters so um it not having a semifinal at Wimbledon, missing a semifinal is uh it's a big strain and it's not ideal.
1: First time in 30 years a slam final, a slam semifinal had a had a default.
0: Cry check, right? 92? Right. Yes. I'm glad you said, Amy, that it's the TV and the fans because um I saw a lot of, I feel bad for Taylor Fritz and, and I don't understand that at all. And I think Fritz put that to rest so we can get rid of that. Uh, I, I feel for the tournament. I feel for the fans. I feel for the TV rights holders, but this is uh, in my opinion, a hazard of individual sports doesn't happen in team sports. Brady goes down. LeBron goes down. We play on. Doesn't happen in golf. You got a field of golfers, uh, in the UFC, it happens, you know, the main event canceled boom fights, not going to happen, but the event still does. Right. So similar to that, uh, tennis, this is how it is. Uh, the solutions are way worse than the problem. in My, opinion. (laughs) the solution of, of putting Taylor Fritz through, he already lost He lost a match point in the tournament. He has a chance to win Wimbledon and he will have gone six and one and lifts the trophy even though he w- goes 6 and 1. Um what do you do about prize money? Nadal deserves his semifinal prize money. He won the quarterfinal. He deserves the semifinal rankings points cuz he won the quarterfinal. Who gets the prize money? Who gets the rankings points? What are we doing here? Uh not to mention um not to mention just the fact that that I guess the for the the history books I just think it's uh, it, it would create a big asterisk. So I I hate it for the fans and the TV, but I don't think it's the same thing as a lucky loser getting put in the first round advancement in the main draw. That's one thing. That's that's up here. Participation in the main draw, we give that out a lot easier. We give wild cards. We we give lucky losers. That that's okay. But advancement, that's a separate level.
1: I like it. Wow, that's pretty. Cogent, thoughtful. I like all that, feel. Yeah, I'm talking about the, the scenario of of the lucky loser and then the you know, they move them on, but then and then there's staying. There's also um, we didn't mention the the possibility of corruption in that also. That that can happen too. You know, people can get in cahoots and, and create a plan. Okay, I'll I'll you know to advance or something like that. Yeah. I,
2: I will say that I have not made up my mind about it yet. Um, but I think it should be discussed. And and there are enough tennis minds, respected tennis minds out there who agree with me, including Pam Shriver, Brad Gilbert, Chris Clary of the New York Times, that l- let's at least talk about it. I, you know, sometimes in... Um, in tennis we get a lot of contrar- contrarianism just right off the bat a, a rules change is proposed and immediately it's it's shot down and and the there's some sort of ugly debate that i i don't think happens in all other sports i think it happens a little bit in baseball um, but even baseball yeah the purists but even baseball, um, as Don Van Natta reported this past week with an amazing piece on, on Major League Baseball, they are considering going to robots to call balls and strikes as soon as 2024. So if baseball and their purists and traditionalists can consider innovations and rules changes, then we as a tennis community should at least be able to discuss it and weigh the pros and the cons without saying things like that's silly or dismissing these ideas out of hand. Um, I, I will just say that I haven't made up my mind about it. And very, very broadly, if you think about it in other sports, there are So called double eliminations. I mean, that's not foreign, it does exist in some other sports, um, very broadly, and I'm not talking about taking a tennis tournament and doing a group stage, please don't misunderstand me. Um, I just think that we have a problem here. And if it becomes too much of a problem, we may need to look at some innovative solutions, just like what happened when in tennis, we were having an overabundance of retirements, not like retiring from the sport, but retiring from matches. So in grand slams, so that um, the players in the first and second rounds could take their prize money and get out of there. Um, and then the rules were changed to, to punish that kind of behavior and cut that out. Lo and behold, the retirements from Grand Slam matches are way down. And that benefits the, the fans and the sport overall.
1: Well, that's a great point. I think, though, you, you mentioned how um, there, this dialogue happens more in tennis. And I think I just figured out, think have a theory why people play tennis, they're individuals, mm-hmm. all levels. So they're all very singular entities. They're all team owners. They're quarterbacks. They know what they know. And they want to make sure they say it. Now you bring in Twitter, social media. So the chance to pop off is right there. <laughs> so, so, it, so it enters the phrase. So something gets broached that way. And the, and the, the team, the culture of the team sports, and I know I'm probably romanticizing them a little bit lenses. Like, well, wait a second. Hmm. What's the commu- what's else uh, going on? But I think tennis players enjoy cracking off opinions and, getting other people and getting people on them. I think, uh, I don't know, I don't think there's any such thing. I, I don't know, you know, to say I, be, being around the sport 50 years, but does not make me like a purist or traditionalist. There are things I like and things I don't like. So I think, but what happens in the social media world, those things get batted back and forth and people get tagged. And then people are drumming up support for themselves or they're drumming up desires to affiliate themselves with other people, you know, to kind of connect with others in the game. So it creates this whole, and that's why I think the uh, for these type of topics, social media might not be the best place to kind of deeply, d- deeply dialogue on them. But it's it's interesting stuff to think about, Good
2: especially points. on
0: a especially on a two hundred eighty character limit. Um, <laughs> I I do think there's yeah like the, there's definitely a closed minded a systematic closed mindedness uh, that that's an issue in tennis. I do think. Uh, this is worth discussing, which is why we're doing it right now. I will also say in the very next sentence that the idea that Taylor Fritz would play a semifinal against Nakirios makes my stomach churn. Um, but that's, you know, that that's my stance on on this one. Yeah, ready to talk with, about the final. I,
1: I, agree, I agree with that. Assume, assuming Nadal didn't default at match points. in other words, that's the only way Fritz either win the match or have Rafa do that and of course as I see I don't think Rafa was in any kind of place to do that different than the Gorman scenario where where Gorman 100% sure can't play tomorrow Rafa was far from 100% any, of anything
2: yeah it does not churn my stomach other things do because maybe because fritz played such a good match um and and in other scenarios you might not have that you may have somebody that lost one two and three and then they're playing in the semifinal, and certainly that wouldn't make sense um i just think that you know we need to
1: wait, wait wait a second i'm sorry if he loses one two and three the lucky loser thing isn't based on quality of effort. The right.
2: Voice... That's that's my point. That's my point. Exactly.
1: Right. So in other words, if, if Nadal had beaten Fritz one, two and three. Yeah. And then. right, reta- yeah, So that's where this lucky loser concept gets.
2: Complicated. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That was my point. Yeah. So. Um, but uh, but the reason that I was just saying that the reason that um, Fritz playing in a semifinal against Curios doesn't turn my stomach is because he played a great match and this is notwithstanding of how he said he doesn't want to hand out. I was just selfishly, selfishly, purely as a fan, wishing that I could have seen Fritz play Curios in a semifinal today. But, um, you know, I understand why not. And I understand your stomach churning, Gil. I, I get that and I hear you on that. I just, I don't quite feel the same way, but uh, it's a good discussion anyway.
1: How big a tear is it, Gil,
0: in your stomach? <laughs> Seven <laughs> millimeters, I'd say. Uh,
2: and <laughs> it could only get worse. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. All right, Curios uh, and Djokovic. It, it's an exciting final. There's going to be. Uh, I I have high hopes and high confidence that we are going to see Novak uh, pushed harder than he was um, in the semis today. Uh, there's so much. Intrigue and, you know, uh, in terms of what Novak can do against the way Nick plays and his skill set and even just the, per- the two personalities on the court, which is what Novak. I think he was joking after the match. He said there's going to be a lot of what emotional fireworks, mm-hmm. he said. Um, yeah, so the personalities are something to watch that the, the skill sets is is, uh, is quite the contrast. Amy, what are you most looking forward to uh, seeing play out in this final?
2: From a tactical technical point of view, it would be Nick's serve against Novak's return, mm-hmm. uh, and also what will what will Curios do on the on his second serve? You know how he likes to sometimes pump it in at one hundred and thirty miles an hour. Um, you know, underarm serve is a, is something that he brings into play. I mean, it should be super, super entertaining. From a, an emotional or interpersonal standpoint, you know, a, a friend, different friend texted me that Curios hates Novak. And I said, no, you're, you're like a year behind. That's so 2021. Um, actually, Curios started to back Djokovic on the vaccine controversy and in nick's own words uh in an interview that he did yesterday i believe he said that a fine bromance has blossomed and that the two of them text each other on instagram and that novak saw nick earlier in the week and said i hope to see you in the finals so um, they've actually kind of become friends. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out.
1: Yeah, that is right. That's right. They've kind of connected. And I think it's interesting how Kyrgios, who at various times during the pandemic was the, was the voice of reason, was talking about things, about being safe and protocols and all that. And then it's turned around. And uh, they played five years ago, two times in the same month at Acapulco and Indian Wells, Kiro him both times. That, as we Novak chroniclers recall, was kind of a down period of Novak. I was at that match at Indian Wells and it was impressive. I mean, Novak was playing that passive way where he can be taken. And in a two out of three set match, that's even more possible because it's such a shorter format. This one is different. And I think uh, as uh, I've been taught, there's two games in tennis, the serve game and the return game. And you hit it, Amy. the Kyrgios serve, the Novak return, and then the opposite too, when Novak is serving. How, what does Kyrgios do? I mean, and Kyrgios is so, uh, he's got so many skills and how does he bring them and how does he build his points? And then there's the whole the whole nerves aspect. I don't know. I hear he's remarkable.
0: I'm so personally interested in seeing if they play their best and for how long, right? In terms of, Nick hasn't been in, a match this big, even not even in the stratosphere. I mean, he didn't play the semifinal with Nadal. That would have been the biggest match of his life. That would have felt different, uh, in my opinion. I mean, you got to remember the the quarterfinal was kind of buried. He's playing Christian Garin on court one. So it, you know, look, he he's had these experiences on the biggest stadiums in the world certainly being the draw that he is from a scheduling perspective being an unseeded player often he he generally has that like second round popcorn match curious murray at the US Open but he i mean this is the Wimbledon final so i'm so fascinated to see how he handles that psychologically given his whole deal about kind of never being someone who is all too motivated in terms of results, someone whose effort level was in and out, someone who's emotionally volatile. And then on the other side, Novak, I'm, I'm much more, obviously, I, I know how well he handles these occasions. I still wouldn't deny that this is um, a, a situation where there is an enormous amount of pressure on Novak with an opponent who can be pretty unnerving, I would say, in a lot of different ways. So I'm fascinated to see if uh, which player we have feeling good, playing their best. We hope both.
1: Yeah, but it's tennis, so neither there's going to be it's going to be str- I think there's going to be a lot of strange patches because the Nick they got a lot of storm. It's like it's going to be like a, st- a metaphorically stormy day of things, of curious flurries and moments. And I could even see some odd things like uh, like Caro's with it getting down. Okay, oh six, let that go. I mean, just stuff, just like you see these these flurries with Kyrgios And yet, it's it's fascinating. It's a really intriguing matchup. I don't think they're going to be playing their best simultaneously by design. I think they're going to each have these different kind of moments of crisscrossing things. We'll see some pretty impressive rallies at times, but it's just you know, Novak Novak's not here to help you play your best.
2: A couple of things that Nick has said have kind of stuck with me. Um, I mean, to what you, to your point, Gil, he said that since he's been born, I think he's 27 years old. Since he's been born, only eight people have ever won Wimbledon. And now he's going out there and trying to do it. I think he knows history really well. And I think that's going to kind of weigh on him. And just from listening to Nick, in some of his more honest moments over the years, he really sees himself as someone who is supposed to entertain and bring eyeballs and be an iconoclast and bring young people in. So I, I wonder if his true goal is deep down inside is really just to entertain and, and, and give it a good go, give it a good show or if he really has that killer instinct to want to win the championship.
1: Well, I think he definitely has some of the first, I think what it is though, this is where you sometimes become at the mercy of your homework. And this is where his whole, it's like Nick versus Nick and who am I? It's like, I didn't mean to get to the Wimbledon final. Oh my God. I, you know, that, that was <laughs> kind of
0: what that. it feels like
1: <laughs> And now. Oh my God, here I am. Here I am. It's the Wimbledon final. It's not, it's not the quarter, it's not the semi. I'm not the surprise. I'm 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 there to really grab some a significant outcome. And he's got his whole process, anti-process, this whole passive aggressive thing, the Australian thing. But the weighing, you know, how funny pressure weighs on people. I thought it's a privilege. He feels more pressure. I feel more pressure.
0: It's, not, well, it's, it's of- usually not a privilege.
2: Well, but oh, no. No, no, I, words. <laughs> I
0: love, I love that quote. I adore that quote from Billie Jean King, but for most players in most situations, it is not a privilege.
2: Well, it's I like, think so you forget weird. that it's a privilege. You go temporarily insane and you lose perspective and, and you forget what it is all about. But I, I, I would be remiss. We would be remiss if we didn't bring up that. There are two extra elements of pressure here, one on each player. One for Novak is that he may or may not be able to play the next two Grand Slams. So that's an element of pressure. And for Curios, he has some accusations of domestic abuse hanging over him that he's going to have to face in Australia. And that story has just broke at the championship. So those are two extra elements that are going to be weighing on them or not weighing on them.
1: See, I think this stuff, I don't know. I know what you, I know what we mean about pressure and we use those terms and who feels more, Who? but it's sort of, I think, I think it's just, it's sort of an, a form of an illusion. It's an illusion an, of what, of what it, it's, it's not necessarily real, even though it's real. It's like belief and all these things. And I think one of the things I so like about Novak is there's been clutter, there are things, There's there's the external opponents and there's opponents and there's moments and he just, gets down to business. That's what I so like about him, how he just focuses on task at hand, playing a good point. And with Kyrgios, that's where we're kind of in the whole realm of the uncertainty about Kyrios because we haven't seen, never seen him play. I've still never seen him play at Grand Slam semi. But now total, I get I the final. Total,
0: Yeah, I agree, total uncertainty. But now and, I get to and the, just
1: the yeah, quick, final.
0: quick clarification, uh, the pressure, uh, I see. Right. Okay. Being in situations where you feel pressure is a privilege. It just doesn't help you play well.
1: Well, what, well, what helps you play? So well, Joel,
0: yeah. let me ask you a question. Uh, Novak Olympics last year, once every four years, obviously fatigue, a, a big factor on both of these occasions, but, but wanting to win the Olympics so bad, uh, really making that a goal coming off of Wimbledon, all, all, the, all of the things you saw there, U.S. Open final against Medvedev. In those two situations, do you not think that the weight of what Novak was trying to achieve was, was a hindrance to him playing free and, and loose and his best tennis?
1: Well, we saw it sort of sure seemed to hinder him because he didn't play well. I think they're, they're very obviously they're very different situations. One, the desire to accomplish something for a nation – in which he's a bigger than life icon, the most significant person in his, in his country or up there. And two, the, the possibility of history. Yes, of course, those are, those are pretty, those are pretty super duper rare moments. I mean, the one he was in the US Open, nobody had been in in 52 years, one three sets away from doing that. The other is also particularly unique to Novak, because of his relationship to his country, in a way that Agreed. it might not have been to an American playing that gold medal match, might not or, or gold medal or a, or a semi. He wasn't playing for the gold last year, but just an American might not have felt that way. Novak's affinity for his homeland. So yes, I get that. But now, now a chance to to win a seventh Wimbledon. I'm not saying of course pressure, nerve. I get it. I mean the nerves. Maybe that's what Novak is. That maybe that's what a lot of these starts have been about this week is his nerves.
2: Well, I think it's pressure is a privilege, almost like the, uh, I'll come up with a corollary to that, the, like the um, Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, um, pressure is a privilege, but pressure is also physiological. It can make your heart increase. It can cause you to sweat. It can cause your muscles to stiffen and tighten. And those are, those are facts that that's biological. So yeah. it can have an impact.
0: There are studies there are studies that say it causes cramping uh, Medvedev have cramped in the third set against Nadal in the Australian Open Final. It was set number three. Are you kidding? So uh, that's a good point Amy. Uh, technically, let's get back to the first thing, which is that we all I think we all agree we're excited to see this. Curioss serve against Djokovic's return. Uh, there have been you know a, a lot of examples of this kind of intrigue on a grass court, knowing how important the first serve is from the Federer-Djokovic rivalry, where that has been a, a, a major factor on Wimbledon, um, at Wimbledon, I should say. You know, I think a lot of people's dream Djokovic matchup is Djokovic-Sampras on, at Wimbledon, wanting to know what that would look like. Sampras's serve volleying against Djokovic's return. Nick and, and his serving, it is special. Like it is really, really, really great to an extent that, that maybe he doesn't even get. I mean, I, I don't know. Like it's really after Isner and Opelka. Um, what do we think? Is he the third best server in the world?
1: I think Novak would rather face those guys serves also because of the way the Nick motion is so good. And so, so whip like and the live arm also the, the uncertain decision making, you know, he, you don't know. Sometimes maybe he doesn't even know, but he probably does. I think I think Kears is a little more calculated than he thinks. And then the follow up, the follow up too, because of what Kears can do with his ground strokes. I mean, the Sampras matchup is intriguing because of the serve volley aspect. So we're going to give Pete the the Pete Wimbledon court or the or the contemporary Wimbledon court for Novak. Either way, the Nick thing, I think it's so, it's kind of the whole decision making. I think Novak, for example. Opelka, is there, he, he, he draws a beat on those guys mm-hmm. like he did with Sinner's Game. Okay, I see. Here's where you go. Yeah, you have your 26 aces. Okay, that's good. But I pretty much am going to deal with you through these lanes. But Kyrgios, different.
2: I think it, I, I'm reminded of a video that I saw from some ATP guys. It was four or five years ago. Uh, they had used their technology to layer Nick's serve over itself, like whether he went wide or whether he went T, and they layered the videos, Oh, and it was identical. Yeah. So the, their point being that his serve is unreadable, and the, the toss is the same, and the racket is the same. He His serve may be more unreadable than Isner's or Opelka's. So I think that, that that's a good point that... He would maybe rather face those serves than Nick's serve.
1: Yeah, he also knows if he spits them back, they less like those guys are less like to hurt them, hurt him the way you know. Karis backs it up pretty well when he's playing well, but again, yeah. there's the whole uncertainty we haven't seen him. So what was his? You know, once he got into that fifth set with Nakashima, he was pretty comfortable. The of I mean, his toughest match was his first round
0: against Jubb, Paul Jubb. Um, <laughs> well, uh, and uh, let's we can also talk about Nick's path. You know, he beats Pass in the third round. And here's a player who he is undefeated against, who struggles to return serve on grass. That's a horrific, that's but a horrific But he's got,
2: he, you mean Tsitsipas? Yeah. yeah. But he's gotten better and he did win a grass core warm up coming into this. I, I think that was a quality win.
0: I think it was a quality win, but I think there's a fair bit of, I mean, I don't know. I thought he'd win that. I guess that doesn't mean much, but like,
2: <laughs> yes, it does. Gil,
0: <laughs> I don't know. Like something about that match. It just felt made for Nick, right? Oh, it, it, of the, if, if you were to say, Nick, pick a surface, pick an opponent in the top eight. I think he's saying, give me Tsitsipas on grass.
1: In the third round. <laughs> in the third round too. So I can just kind of have a no lose thing and, and serve and, serve a lot to a one-handed backhand
0: mm-hmm.
1: and go to town and still emerge seven, six in the fourth.
0: Yeah. And, and now he, now he plays right. Nakashima and green. It's not Piros' fault, uh, but there, there are questions like how, how ready is he to now play the elite of the elite in best of five? There's a question there.
1: Yeah. He must be one of the most underseasoned. Slam finalist. I mean, you look at the other guys who Novak's played. You know, for example, you know Berrettini last year. He generated some results. Um, obviously the time before he's playing a Federer. Even uh, you know uh, Kevin Anderson. You know Kevin Anderson is a campaigner. Kevin Anderson is kind of the anti-Kirios in his approach to work and discipline. So here's Nick. It is just it's hard. I'm I'm trying to remember a more wild card like finalist, and I'm not. And I don't. And I don't. associate, even Gordon Ivanovic, who is 125 in the world, but he's been to three finals.
2: And yet we know what Kurios is capable of based on his record against the current top 10, which I believe is above 500 now. But bad so, in
0: best of five. I'm not sure what it is exactly, but...
2: His overall record, record in best of five is pretty good, though, isn't it? Versus yeah, top 10 but
0: versus 10. top 10... Versus in- the
2: current the current top 10 or... No. or?
0: at the time top 10. I'll get it for it'll take me only a second to get it. best of 5. Oh, okay. Hold on. I it's remember looking up on.
2: some stats from earlier this week that he had a pretty good record in best of 5. And mm-hmm. and, and and he'll tell you in five set matches He's what, undefeated at Wimbledon or something? He's got all the stats. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, because he's when he's playing, you know, he creates a lot of drama in the early rounds because he's under season sometimes. And so then he has to go five sets with someone who you'd like to think he should beat in straight sets, and that's all good. So well, I want to see him, you know, it's just it's a remarkable career. And here he's in a Wimbledon final and it's it's a fascinating matchup. I mean, here's a guy who Novak who always does his homework. And here's Kirio showing up.
0: Wow. All right. Uh, three wins, 15 losses. Uh, it was a 10 match losing streak. One, two, three, 10 match losing streak before he beat Tsitsipas. So the history of beating top 10 players in best of five, it is not there.
1: I think you, yeah. And I think you guys might've been talking about two different data points. One.
2: Yeah. I was three. talking about overall record in best five. of five. No, we
1: were, we were talking about playing top 10 players. In best of five format.
2: Right. And he, I, I was saying he has a pretty good record just overall in best of five and also in five set matches, but mm-hmm. you're talking about top 10.
0: Yeah. I'm saying, is he ready to beat top players in best of five? Cause in best of three, he's actually been very, he has a good record. He's 20, 25 and 35, which is fine. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty good against top 10 players. And then you just see that win percentage just nosedive when it's best of five, which means it's a major.
2: But what's his overall record in best of five? Wait, they're,
1: they're, the, they're,
2: the question,
0: yeah, I, I will, I'll I'll, get that. But wouldn't okay. the question be, is that better or worse than best of three, right? Because he's a good player. So he should have a good record in general. Um,
1: in best of five format, as opposed to fifth sets?
0: So best of five, yeah, best of five format. He is uh, 57 and 32, which is a 64% win percentage. Mm-hmm. Now let's see all best of three. He is 184 and 93. That is a 66% win percentage. So slightly, maybe negligibly better in best of three.
2: And, and uh, his five set record.
0: Oh, in five setters. Like yeah, it, it goes to a fifth. Um, that would be eleven and three. That is excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, Nakashima and and Job two and zero oh in this event. All right, let's wrap wrap it up with like one thing that I think we will see. Okay, I think here is one thing that I do think we will see. Djokovic's rate of returns in play, in my opinion is going to expose some of Curios's bad habits. Lapses in focus, some poor decision-making, occasional laziness, just those little blips in the radar. Those little blips in the radar are gonna be a lot worse because of how much Djokovic is able to get the serve back. Joel?
1: I agree with that and it reminds me of the time early in Curios's journey, I think it was Roland Garris and I think it was Andy Murray. So I think that's kind of like a prototype matchup it's like this guy this guy it's like that's why i would have been interested to see um Kiris play demon in lieu of garen like this guy just keeps spitting things back and i how many forehand winners do i have in me so you're right so it's because he's going to hit his share of aces he'll hit plenty 25 plus or something aces but how much what's the spit back rate of the other ones and deep and middle and deep and middle and again i think we talked about that before about a good way to play Kiros might be to hit to a lot of B and C deep middle because he liked, he loves off the move, angle, go, shot, make, do something. So I agree. That's going to be interesting. So again, yeah, serve and return. That's, that's the pivot.
2: I think one thing I would look for is break point opportunities how much can he get into the Curios service games and annoy him and bother him, even if he doesn't convert those breaks. That's something that I I think Djokovic really did well today. He may not have had a great conversion rate, but it seemed that he was always uh, bothering Norrie in his service games. So that could be a key in this match.
1: Well, and I think when you're a great returner, it's generating those. And again, I don't need, I think, it, it, you're getting into those games you're right so if he earns 17 break points and he wins three of them you can win Wimbledon I mean it's not about yeah. going 14 of 17
2: yeah exactly
0: Novak Djokovic goes for major number 21 against unseeded, but extremely talented unpredictable Nick curios seventh Wimbledon title on the line we will have coverage afterwards we're pumped for this one That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you rate and review. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.